welcome to SciGest, your fortnightly serving of digestible science from plant and food research. Kia ora koutou and welcome to SciGest. Well, you wouldn't think it from the photos, but today our SciGest baby has turned 100. Yep, today is the 100th episode of our highly successful science podcast channel. But before we get started, I would like to introduce my co-host, the talented Erin Stroud. Thank you, Andrew. Happy to be here. And I recommend you check out her Starting in Science series, shameless plug. Okay, so 100th episode. We're tackling something really big that affects anyone who's been to a supermarket recently and wondered why there's no flour in aisle three. Wondered why a cauliflower just cost you $8. Wondered if you should deposit your fruit and veg in an offshore bank account because now food is just too precious to eat. (laughs) Okay, today we'll be tackling the future of food production in New Zealand. We have two guests who have built up an extensive insight into our future food production. Ian Proudfoot from KPMG and David Hughes, CEO of Plant and Food Research. So maybe for the rookies out there like me, would both of you like to please uh, briefly introduce who you are and why you're here today? Would we start with you, Ian? Okay, so I'm KPMG's Global Head of Agribusiness. I lead our global network of professionals that work across food and fibre space, and um, that covers about 50 countries. So a lot of my time is spent talking to our clients and governments around the world around what the future looks like for the food system. Great, and now we've got you talking on the podcast, so even better. David? Yeah, and I've been working in the food industry my entire working life since leaving university. So the first 20-odd years in the dairy industry, about half of that in New Zealand and about half of that in other countries around the world, and for the last 14 or so years here at Plant and Food Research. Wow, we're very lucky to have both of you here with us today. Thank you for being here. Like what Andrew said earlier, the supermarket shelves might be looking a little bit skint at the moment. There's a lot of contributing factors to that, things like climate change and Ukraine and even COVID. But I guess maybe a good starting point for this podcast and for our listeners is talking about what do we think the future of food is and why is it important for the people tuning into this podcast today? So I think the future of food is dramatically different to what it has been for the last 13,000 years. I think we're about to go through the most fundamental change in the food system. Food doesn't fit our lifestyles any longer. Mm. Uh, there is the opportunity to change that. And I think the environment you refer to that, that we've got the background at the moment is the driver for that change. Anything is possible in the food system now. So for your listeners, this is the most exciting industry globally. And for me, I think the future of food is a bit back to the past. So I'm going to disagree with Ian, which makes these podcasts so much more fun. Uh, I'm optimistic that people will see food as being more than just energy for the body and will remember the cultural and social value of food. Remember that food has been central to human cultural existence since the very beginning and it's brought people together and kept people together. It's been the glue for society. So I'd love to see food being valued just for all of its cultural and social benefits benefits as well as its nutritional and health benefits. You just extended the topic points for today's episode, David. Now we're talking about the future and the past of food. It's great. <laughs> so looking into the future, sorry, David, we'll, we'll come back to the past. We've got a growing population to feed. By 2050, we need to be feeding roughly 10 billion people. And we have to do that with less resources and less land than ever before. So the challenge is, how do we feed all of these people and make sure that we've got some food security for us here in New Zealand as well. So the main question that that point leads to is what exactly is the problem here? What is the problem with food production and food security? 
So firstly, I, I don't necessarily agree we'll have to feed 10 billion people. I think we're probably looking at a position where those expectations around where our global population will grow to, to me, are now no longer sustainable. I think COVID's changed some of the, the fundamental trajectory in that area. But what we do know is we still can't feed the people we've got on the planet today, let mm-hmm. alone um, if we've got an extra billion or so, which is very possible. So, you know, if you think about what the fundamental problems are, we we can't feed the people we have. Um, We can't give them the nutrition they need. We've got fundamental issues with non-communicable diseases like diabetes, heart disease and cancer, which a lot of which can be directly traced back to what people are eating. Um, And we've got a, a disconnect of the food system to the environment. So, you know, the way we are growing food around the world is breaking our natural environment so all of those require change so that's why I I think we're moving towards a food system that's going to see us having you know quite distinctly different streams to feed different parts of our population but ultimately utilizing the technology we have available particularly the biotechnology to actually produce better outcomes better food and you know while David mentioned his his view that you know people will connect more with food. I think that will be part of it. It will just be in a different way to how we're connected with food in the past. Given the amount of food waste we produce, is this just a question of access to food or is it a production problem? I mean, because you're talking about we're not feeding the planet currently, but I think the perception is it's a distribution or access problem. Is that correct? Well, we, we definitely don't eat anywhere close to all the food we produce. So, you know, general wisdom is that we waste about a third of all the food produced globally. So there is a distribution challenge. That's actually a really difficult problem to solve in some respects because you know a lot of the food is being grown in places where we don't have supply chain and logistics. And if anything, supply chain and the logistics are going to be more challenging in the past rather than easier. And you know we've seen probably the the seeds of a fundamental shift in supply chain over the last two to three years. So when when I bring it together. I think it's about getting much more targeted on where we grow food, so we're growing it much more closely to where people eat. Um, and you know that's, that means potentially the food that we're producing is being coming from fermenting or culturing or controlled growing systems, you know vertical farms, those sort of things. And that's happening very, very close to our consumers. So the risk, the gap between where food is grown and where food's eaten um, for loss becomes smaller. And as a consequence, we, we can get more of what we produce actually being used. So what are the top issues, aside from potentially supply chains, that are being faced at the moment surrounding food security? I think there's a real danger that we become focused on cost reduction or productivity as a mindset for food production. And I personally think that's a dead end. I think that takes us to all of the wrong places. We need to be focused on value creation and, and um exploring the value that food brings and increasing the value that food brings. So all of the things Ian was talking about are all different technologies or different approaches that can add value to food and make food more valuable for people. And when food is genuinely valued and the value that is created from that activity flows back to the food producers, they can invest to create more food. But if the model runs the other way and you try and drive cost out of food, then there is less available for everybody to invest to make more. And you tend to drive it in absolutely the wrong way and you get bad outcomes. So for me, the fundamental 
change that we need to make is around how we value food and how we ensure that the value from food is created and shared. So big question, how do we do that? We've seen some really interesting examples of that in our international development work, um, working with small lot farmers in places like Cambodia or in Vietnam, uh, and focusing on what they can grow best. Again, points Ian was making. Should they just be producing um, generic rice to go into the world rice uh, pool, or instead, should they be focusing on high-value crops like melons and supplying it to domestic supermarkets in their own country? Uh, and what really creates value there is if you put good uh, agricultural practice across the top of their growing system so that the buyers of that product know that they're getting safe produce produced locally to very high standards, they're willing to pay more for that produce, which allows the grower to dramatically increase their incomes and invest in really good agricultural practices. So it's a self-reinforcing cycle. So I think we just need to do that on a global scale. That's a micro scale. But that whole mindset of investing into food to create value to give people what they really want and for the people buying it to value those attributes i think that's the answer if we can get to that point then we're in a really good place so that investment in food is that going to have to shift with things that are currently being faced like climate change the war in ukraine as well as things like covid are we investing in the right things um we probably haven't been. And, you know, if you do look, you know, COVID wasn't, a, it's put huge stress on the food system, but it's not broken the food system. Mm. The way we're looking at Ukraine at the moment, and, you know, Ukraine was a major exporter of food. Russia was a major contributor of food. Um, it really has completely changed how the food system will work. And there's a couple of drivers behind that. You know, it was a provider of a very key uh, or a couple of very key commodities um, in terms of some of the grains and, and some of the seed oils. And, you know, that's forcing organisations to think about reformulating their products. So that's going to mean that, that some of the technologies that have been sitting there and have been evolving now get a huge impetus to move forward. You know, the grain that was coming out of Ukraine and Russia and being used to feed animals, that grain's not there now. It's going to change how animals get raised, particularly in Europe. So the incentive to accelerate the alternative dairy and the alternative meats is significantly much greater, as well as you know a lot of fertilizer was coming out of Ukraine and being used around the world. That's not there or significantly more expensive. In fact, it was coming out of Russia and Belarus more than Ukraine. But that's going to really require farmers to think a lot more about how they use inputs in their farming systems. So all of this, I think, is going to crystallise a position where there is real significant investment being made into some of the alternative technologies that surround the food system. And, and you know, that won't feed everybody. There, there's undoubtedly, there is a huge amount that we need to do to enable people to feed themselves around the world, you know, support subsistence farming with the technologies we take for granted. Then, but they're not available to the rest of the population because they're just not scaled to be able to be supplied to the rest of the population. We've been doing some fantastic and really interesting work with some of the big global players in the agricultural system about how they materially impact the lives of um, subsistence farmers and exactly the sort of thing David's talking about. How can you scale what we do down to make it really relevant to small farmers? But the, the core of people are going to be fed from this, this modern food system that's going to provide them, you know, affordable, nutritious food. 
and it's going to come from different ways. So, you know, uh, you know, another interesting area we might get into is talking about what's going to come from the sea, because I, I believe there's a huge amount of food that's going to come from the sea moving forward, and it's not just going to be fish. I think what's interesting as well is that there's not only this change come about from the volatility of the global <laughs> situation at the moment, but it's also been driven by the consumer. People are wanting different options now and more sustainable options do you think that's going to also change the future of food david i'm an incurable optimist so yes i think it will and i'm i'm very hopeful about that because we saw um, in the last 50 years rise of malnutrition in very wealthy societies Mm -hmm. malnutrition being obesity suggesting that people were eating all of the wrong type of food and it wasn't a problem with affordability often it was just actually food type availability and food choices we were getting all mixed up in broadly wealthy countries. So I'm very optimistic that in the future we'll see a reversal of that. We're understanding that a lot more than we have in the past. And I, and I would love to see food valued and put back into the centre of a lot of our cultural processes and developments. I'd love to see us celebrating food in festivals as people have done in the past. I'd love to see people celebrating food in their family or closer community groups that they work in rather than eating on the go. I'd love to see that um, food becoming central to our life again. And I think there's a real opportunity now post the pandemic to actually do that, to think quite differently about food and to increase its value to us and the choices we make valuing it versus other things. And if we do that, then that actually will create a a huge emphasis for investment into sustainability and those sort of things, because those will be some of the aspects we value. That's a tough call, though, because we're going through a period now of financial insecurity, possible recession, uh, people's costs are going to be going up. There's going to be even more pressure on people's budgets. And I guess your solution is quite a complex one that requires factors and inputs from outside the family unit. I guess you need employers to let people spend more time at their tea breaks and not Mm. walking around with a sandwich in their hand. And it's, yeah, it's a complex answer. And my concern is that the increasing pressures on people in the next years will will make it even harder for people to focus on the things that that matter the most, like you've just outlined. I mean, they're all good suggestions, but the environment we're in will make it hard. I think you're right. I think we're approaching a really critical moment for the world to make choices about what really matters to them. Mm. And I hope that food will be one of those choices that comes to the top. People will think carefully about food and say, look, this is really important to me. This is probably more important to me than my data plan on my mobile. If I have to make a choice, I'm going to choose really good food over a really flash data plan. So I I would hope that as a world, we start making some of those choices. And I think because the um, food system is under such stress, it will be a topic of dialogue And it'll be an opportunity for the world to reassess, reassess its direction of travel. So, yeah, being an optimist, um, I I look at the things you're talking about and I hope that they will jolt us. They'll jolt us into making some really big decisions, resetting our priorities and thinking more carefully about where food fits within the priority list. Yeah, I, I probably take the other side. I'm I'm a licensed financial auditor, so you know somebody that's inherently been there to look at the negative and to you know assess the risk. And while I think there will be a connection to the role that food plays in the most important parts of our lives, it will be used in that way. So the beautiful natural food we produce in New Zealand will still absolutely have a place, but 
people will use it for the events when they're connecting with friends and family when they're celebrating particular you know milestones the bulk of what they will eat will be food that enables them to function and you know i think when you're thinking about a global population where so much of the population is either now working from home or commuting you know taking huge distance commutes where they're on the train two three four hours a day you know the, the way we've traditionally eaten food and free meals a day doesn't fit with our lifestyles so we've actually got to move to you know what what i talk about is protein 3.0 you know 2.0 is what we're seeing at the moment the emergence of the alternative food system you know the alternative meats and the alternative dairy but actually what what does food fit look like that really gives us what we need to function so we can be effective in our, our jobs we can create a good living for our families and give us that opportunity when when we're together with them to actually then buy um, the best food in the world to to celebrate and and mark key events and i i, I think therefore you know for me the solutions is is how how do you give people that that shot of energy at 3 p.m in the afternoon so they can continue to get through the day how do you enable people to eat something that's actually really good for them when they're on a train you know coming home from a, a long day at work and they've got an hour and a half commute so that you know they're not incentivized to then jump into the takeaway shop at the station and grab something that's really not very good for them because that's the only option available to them mm. coming back to their values and putting yeah. the value on food yeah mm. yeah i think there's certainly a lot of challenges at the moment globally but being an optimist as well david uh, it's certainly a very exciting time to be in science or someone who's looking at food security because there's so much room for innovation at the moment and i think it's really uh, amazing looking at the solutions that are starting to come out yeah i think i'd like to start off with david first because you were recently in singapore and came back with some thoughts about they've got this new target now which aims to produce 30% of its food domestically by 2030. It's, they call it the 30-30 approach, I guess. And it's currently sitting around 10%. What is that looking like? Do you have some, some good sort of intel into how they're doing this? Yeah, first, stepping back a little bit, I, I think um, Singapore is um, probably leading the way for a lot of major cities around the Pacific Rim. Um, so the pandemic in particular has brought real sharp focus around food security at a city level. When you see cities locked down and their supply chain disrupted, city leaders and people in the city are saying, hey, we, we need to stop thinking about food security from a national perspective and we need to think a lot more locally. We need to think about how will this city of quite a few million people feed itself. So Singapore is already ahead of the game. They've already set this national target of 30 by 30, 30% of the country's nutrition domestically produced by 2030. Uh, and they're investing heavily into that target. But I think you'll see a lot of other major cities around the world adopting very similar targets, looking to say, how can we provide security that we need for our food? by having it produced domestically. And that points you towards some obvious technologies. Aquaculture is a really important one for um, Singapore, but for a lot of these cities, they are on the Pacific Rim, so there are, they are close to ocean spaces. So you'll see aquaculture uh, or land-based um, recirculation aquaculture systems 
coming to the fore there. So intensive aquaculture systems seems a pretty important place to go. Uh, vertical farming, um, Singapore's doing a lot of work on vertical farming and we're seeing enormous investment globally into vertical farming systems. So I think we'll see a lot more of that coming out. And the fermentation or cell-based uh, technologies starting to evolve and starting to be explored in some of these countries too. So a lot of these things can place directly into a target like 30 by 30. So long term, we're going to assume hopefully this conflict in Ukraine resolves itself. If the pressures start to go away, are we likely to see that the cheaper ways of production come back in again and some of these nice incentives that you see Singapore trying with vertical agriculture and stuff suddenly become under more a less desirable economic model, I guess. So are they sustainable through things going back to normal? inverted commas, I guess. Yeah, I actually think they're under enormous pressure right now because of energy prices. So a lot of these technologies do have energy as a key component of it. So energy prices are actually putting real pressure on them today. And I'm not seeing that weaken Singapore's resolve just from the small amount I know about it. And I don't think it changes the fundamental dynamic of um, people in cities wanting to have surety of food supply for them because food is just so central to life. So uh, yes, I could see when things change, you might see some change in dynamics, but I think they're under pressure right now and I don't see that pressure going away anytime soon. I would look to things, for example, like plant-based disease pandemics being just as likely as the COVID pandemic we've talked about and, and running amok across food systems is a very realistic scenario in the next 10 years. So any event like that is going to drive people back in this direction. So I think there'll always be a bit of to and fro, but I wouldn't expect the full to come off the pedal on focusing on domestic uh, food security issues. What about in big agricultural markets like the US or you know Europe, France, etc.? Are we seeing the sort of the first stirrings of a shift towards, for example, regenerative agriculture and things like that? Um, yeah, definitely. And you know the Ukraine situation is is definitely accelerating some of that. You know, the caveat that Dave has put out that the energy cost issue is significant. Um, but you know what we are seeing around the world is farmers having to work out how they respond to a much higher cost base in their farming system. So whether it's the input cost coming from fertilizer, the, the fundamental fact is the pandemic has changed the labor supply into the agricultural market forever. You know the system has heavily relied on cheap migrant transient labor, and that's not going to be something that is going to be able to go back to in the same way that it's been able to access in the past um, energy costs are higher and you know when i'm outside of new zealand that's normally the first conversation we have about on-farm cost it's something we don't talk about so much here in this country but definitely is a key area of focus so when when you've got this amount of cost pressure coming out of business there is a need to do things differently and there is a need to think about lower input systems so whether you call it a regenerative farming or whether you call it a lower input farming system it is the direction of travel I think we, we have no choice but to head in. And that has benefits, obviously, because it will help us achieve a, a system that's better for, for the climate as well over time. But I, 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 so I, I don't see anything stopping that. And I see that trend and we hear that trend as clearly in the United States as we do in Europe or any other market around the world. The, the challenge, though, probably is, you know, for the states, these are quite fundamental changes because you've had very large industrialised farms built on monoculture farming systems and they, they can't pivot quickly. But definitely the conversations we're having are saying they're looking at how they do pivot 
and they're recognising that there is no other option but to start to change. Do we have enough tools to do this? There's some we're not using widely at the moment, I guess. I guess you think of biotech offering potential. Um, Is the conversation around biotech changing in response to these pressures? Um, I I definitely think it is changing internationally. I, I think we're seeing that that conversation evolve and you know gene editing is is changing people's perception of that it's moved it out from being the you know the two-headed sheep and transgenics and everything like that to becoming very much a conversation that people can understand in that you can make some changes quite quickly to a plant that are not doing anything not bringing anything in not taking anything away just switching genes on and off and you know, I, I think from New Zealand's perspective, we need to really become part of that conversation quite quickly, and be very clear on what our long-term, you know, view is around how we will think about using those technologies. Because the rest of the world is moving forward quite quickly. We're even starting to hear, you know, markets that have been assumed to be closed to these technologies. Things like what's happening in Ukraine are even opening up the conversation in Europe about, you know. What, what is there some of this we need to now think about obviously the uk having left europe or the eu anyway uh, is now um, refocusing on and significant changes to its rules coming through so you know markets that we've just done free trade agreements are evolving we've got to be thinking about how we evolve alongside them are we having those conversations david is something that's going to occur in the new zealand in the next year or two you think I think as a society, um, without knowing it, we have been having some of these conversations. Um, I take Impossible Foods, um, for example, which is a very technology-rich product. There's significant technology investment gone on to create that food. It's a very technologically sophisticated um, product. Uh, Lots of conversations have been had around the pros and cons of that in the last five years. Uh, and I, I think it's generally settled. There's a lot of people have said, look, I'd be quite happy to eat that kind of product, even though there's a lot of technology that have gone into it. And there are some people that said, no, I'm not. It, you don't have to have a national consensus on that, but it's great to have had a national conversation on that. So I think we're starting to feel our way forward in some of these dialogues to say it's not a black or white kind of thing. There's a whole range of different perspectives that can be held on this, and we can have some fairly mature conversations on these things. I, I certainly remember the very early days on Impossible Foods where Air New Zealand put it on its menu, <laughs> and there was a lot of screaming and shouting went on around that. That didn't actually last that long. That died around pretty quickly, and then people just stood back to say, let's see how consumers actually react to this product. Let's see what sort of traction it gets in the marketplace. Let's see if the world does come to an end, and most people have concluded <laughs> it hasn't. It can coexist alongside a whole range of other products. It's just another option in the toolkit. So yeah, my sense is that we're maturing into a place where we can have these conversations. The stage is somewhat set. I have to say, Air New Zealand cooked the Impossible Food Burger so badly. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. It didn't stay on the menu for very long. But, you know, it, that's a really great example because I, I remember being up at Stanford at a Tohono event in 2017 where I arrived a day or two late and they'd had Pat Brown, who was the founder of Impossible Foods, in to talk and tell them the story. And they were all amazed when I raised the question that it was a GM-based product mm. because, you know, he had told the story in such a beautiful way without that one piece of 
information being necessary to the way he told the story that um you know we had a large group of leaders of the new zealand primary sector that were complete believers in the product um without recognizing or understanding it was a gm-based product so i i think people are open based on multiple attributes of a product to think about where the products come from if a product's better for the environment if it's better for your health if it's you know better for your wallet at the moment they, they can all be drivers that will enable people to see through into a, a, a new generation of food. Absolutely. And I think necessity breeds change. And I think the consumer preference is changing. And what is spurring that on is the range of products that are out there now. It's not just you know GMO foods or lab-based meat. We're now, we've now got clean meats, which are effectively animal cells grown in a vat to made, made to look like a meatball. So with, that, with all of these options now, we do certainly have a lot of pathways forwards. And I think all of those options are creating genuine value for people. People are approaching mm-hmm. food with their beliefs and their values and their lifestyle in mind. And the food industry is creating some really interesting options for them. So to me, that's that's hugely useful because it's all part of this value creation story, which I think if we get that right, it flows back into sustainable food systems. It creates enough margin for everyone to reinvest mm. and keep the whole food system going. So for me, that's a really positive trend. Greater choice is a fabulous thing, especially if it's value creating choice. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think it's important that we don't talk about you know markets as a country Mm. you know our global food market is made up of millions of niches with consumers that have specific wants and needs to match their lifestyles and their politics and their religion and a whole range of other factors and you know we've, we've got to be designing food solutions that match the needs of niches and being really selective about which ones we invest the time and effort in targeting to ensure that the ones that, you know, from New Zealand's basis, they've got to be high value. We've got to be getting the money in because in the end, you know, $52 billion into our economy this year from food. We, you know, the food system is the only game in town for bringing wealth into this country and, and that's likely to remain the same for, for the foreseeable future. Singapore is just such a great example of that. You think about Singapore as a country and the food available in Singapore, if you buy food, is enormous. The variety, uh, the food cultures that are represented there, uh, Indian cultures or Malay or uh, ethnic Chinese cultures Mm. or or a whole range of Western food. You can buy everything from cheap street food, which is just delicious and fabulous food, all the way to some of the world's most expensive restaurants and everything in between. And people are, are buying food at all those different price points because each of them creates value for them. On on one end, it creates a real sense of occasion if you're going to a really top-class restaurant and having fabulous food. It's something that's really valuable. It's a fabulous set of memories, and it's an experience that you're willing to pay for. At the other end, something from a food court in a department store for your lunchtime is a fabulous experience in its own right too, and it's great food, and it's at a very different price point. So, yeah, I agree with Ian. I, th- I think we need to be thinking in terms of experiences, what people value and why they value it and ensuring we're Mm. delivering value. If we can do that and use technology to do that, that, then I remain really optimistic about the future of food. Yeah, and Singapore demonstrates it so wonderfully because it's one stop on the MTR Hmm. um, that you you go and you're in a different food niche. Um, I remember taking my daughter into into Little India and that was an interesting food experience for her, that was for certain. (laughs) 
it's a mishmash of cultures but i yeah. guess some cultures have food on it like you said on the different pedestal to our culture or you know western culture and i guess that helps in terms of understanding food and what it can do for you i think like you said earlier david we put food well down our, our list of priorities and maybe cultures have a head start if they've got food embedded as you know healthy food to embed it in their in their culture i guess to start with it may, maybe that makes that shift easier yeah, I hope um, cultures that have lost the plot on food have, have devalued food and have just seen it kind of as an energy source will rediscover that. And, and I'm seeing some really positive trends. Uh, a lot of the consciousness around the environmental footprint of food production is starting to put value back into food. People are saying, actually, I'm willing to pay more if this food is more sustainable. If people start doing that, it's starting to be more thoughtful about food. It's starting to think about food in a different way. I also think some other modern trends like flexible working more people working from home actually could be really positive around food because that allows people to re-engage with producing their own food for themselves. It, it reduces some of the risks that are sitting there. It actually might allow us to set up some new food consumption kind of patterns and dialogues again. It might change the way we relate to food. So I think you know, these change points are an opportunity for us to reset if we get them right. So I'm looking to food marketers to grab those moments because they're fabulous people at creating value through um, simple ingredients. It'd be fabulous if they emphasised those sort of aspects in their food marketing. I'd like to shift the focus back to New Zealand now. And there's something, I guess there's this weird tension between our two markets. We have this international market, this export market, very successful, very tailored around premium foods. As you mentioned before, something like $52 billion a year comes in through it. And we have the domestic market, right? Which has actually been quite high profile lately because of negative reasons, the high cost of food in New Zealand supermarkets. The quite startling thing I read, I'm not sure how reliable the figure is, but 40% of New Zealand households have some degree of food insecurity. And a country that produces so much, this seems bizarre. So solutions for New Zealand in terms of the way we prioritize or structure our markets. Yeah, so it's a really good point. And I think, you know, it's really come home to me in the last few months with conversations we've been having um, around the horticulture sector. You know, we do have two food systems in New Zealand. We've got one of the, the world's best export-focused food systems. But at the same time, we've got a domestic food system that is incredibly fragile. And you talk to some of the horticulture growers that are targeted at producing food for the domestic market, they're, they're really struggling to, to make a dollar. And yet every time the price goes up, they're getting beaten up for high-priced fruit and vegetables. It's not because they're making more money. It's they're just trying to cover their costs to keep providing the, the community with healthy food. So we, we have got a fundamental problem in New Zealand and we do have inherent high levels of food insecurity and we've got fundamental challenges in our healthcare system where you know some of our outcomes in terms of obesity, heart disease, diabetes are some of the worst in the developed world. So I, I look at these challenges and I say something's got to change and in the end we sell our food to the world at a premium because we sell it as sustainable, healthy food. So the change to me has to come from within the food system. The export food system can't continue to ignore the inequity in our food system. It has to become part of the solution or inherently it is the problem. 
And if it's the problem, it will lose its license to operate over time because the community will not continue to tolerate the outcomes that we've got. So I, I think it's about thinking really differently. That What I'm not saying is individual farmers need to start subsidising the, the food system by, you know, not selling into markets where they can make the most money but we need to think differently about the economics and the economic models we use as to how we support our domestic food system we need to give people more knowledge about how to use food so they can use it better to create better outcomes for themselves and ultimately we've we've got to get to a position where every new zealander is fed first and you know that's if we don't achieve that, I see fundamentally the future of our export system is under real risk. Yeah, well, essentially, we've, I guess we've failed if we if we can't yeah. feed the five million before the forty odd million that we export to. Um, is the supermarket duopoly a big part of this? Is is this a key driver? Given that most people probably access their fruit and veg that way. Well, interestingly, you know what the pandemic highlighted is that you know the, the supermarket system only feeds about seventy percent of the population. You know, other people are accessing it through more informal channels, through markets, um, or, you know, particularly here in Auckland, a lot of people will only really buy food from, you know, cafes and restaurants. They'll eat out predominantly most of the time. So when, when you actually think about it, the supermarket system in New Zealand has actually shown great resilience, great durability over the last two years to continue to supply so much more of the, the needs of the food system than it it was you know designed to actually do but what we've got is a real wholesale problem i think so rather than that the retail level the challenges around the wholesale systems that we've got and i think that's where we need to think creatively about how we can create a wholesale system that means that farmers can be you know funded to make sure everything gets picked make sure that we don't leave food, you know, apples on the ground going to waste, but we get them all in and we can store them and we can, you know, either process them into something that can be used across the whole year or can be spread across the market so we don't get big spikes and troughs in price, but we actually get consistent, accessible food which people can buy and retain their mana. And that's sort of what it comes down to. If, if people are reliant on receiving food parcels, we've actually taken away an individual's sort of personal respect, their mana. And that, that's not a food security system. That's a food insecurity system. We need to think differently about how we move to you know, providing people with food security. This sounds like a role for government then in terms of some of these bigger structural changes that need to happen. Government's an enabler. Government's part of the solution, but the food system needs to drive the solution. Because actually, to me, we are all part of the food system. Well, we need to make it very clear what we expect our food system to deliver. But the science system absolutely has a role to play in this. The, the industry has a significant role to play. Our NGOs and our the organisations that work with vulnerable communities have a key role to play as well. But it's bringing together all of them to work collaboratively rather than trying to change it from the top because ultimately, you know, food food is a, a grassroots system. You know, it's the one thing that's most personal to all of us. We put it in our bodies. It shapes how we function as humans. So I, I, I don't see it as a... I, I don't see any solution coming from government down 
I believe it's got to be a partnership across our food system. Systematic change is what's required to Yeah, and we've got to think issues. about it as a system, mm. not as a series of silos, which is how our food system has been thought about historically. Because even just to pick up on one thread that you popped in there, which is food waste, um, I was reading some stats because numbers don't sit in my brain very well, but uh, it looks like New Zealand uh, wastes about $872 million worth of food annually. And that doesn't mean much when you're thinking about New Zealand as a whole, but for the individual family unit, it's roughly $560 a year annually that you're just throwing away as trash and that actually equates to either 55 chickens or 888 apples which might be if you think the way that I think that's how how my brain works so what I'm trying to highlight there is that systematic change is going to be required all the way from the individual through to hopefully governmental stages too yeah well if you think about it those 888 animals apples for me as a, a family of three that's an apple a day to keep the doctor away from our family for the year. <laughs> and, you know, that's that has a direct impact. You know, what we put into body, you know, drives our health outcomes. I was stupid enough to put a lot of rubbish into my body during a period in the, the mid-2010s. I ended up having open-heart surgery because of that and having had heart attacks. I, I saw the experience at that time of, you know, what what you eat shapes how you, the outcomes you get. I've been lucky enough to be given a second chance of life because I I wasn't one that ended up in a box. So the reality is, you know, if there's one thing that's worth doing, it's actually getting our food system sorted out so it works for every New Zealander. And I think we've got all the ingredients for that. We, we know we can produce some of the world's best food, and we do. Mm. And the world demands it of us. And we know we're a relatively wealthy country when you look across all of the countries of the world. So you say we've got wealth in New Zealand. We've got great food production capability in excess of what we need for a country. So somehow we've got to join the dots and get the system to work. We've got to do things that create a real focus on the value that food can bring in, in all sorts of value. And as a country, if we recognise that and change the system to capture that value, I think it will make a material difference for us. Yeah. It's just about, I, I think there's been a fundamental change around equity in society over the last two years. You know, equity was, inequity was hidden. It was the government's problem. I think what the pandemic's done is it's surfaced inequity. The, you know, we, at the same time we sat and watched the Black Lives Matter processes, that protest, that surfaced more inequity. I, I just look and I, I feel now that, you know, society expects more from business. Society expects us to become part of the solution to some of these problems. And, you know, inherently, if we don't, I think society will judge us really negatively. So what solutions are there for New Zealanders? Are there things that we can apply from what we've seen overseas in terms of vertical farming and things like that to the New Zealand system to ensure some more of that food security? I think there's some really interesting opportunities you know, to use some of those technologies and you know, the, the idea of um, an iwi operating a vertical farm to ensure it's got consistent fresh produce available for its people but then also having the opportunity to sell what it doesn't need for its community out at a, a premium because it's a high quality premium product you know unlocks a whole sorts of range of interesting business models i i think we've got to be 
clearer around the import and export of food out of this country in particular you know when we're importing we've got to ensure the food is meeting the standards we expect it to meet we we can't bring in cheap calories that are, are going to you know create health problems for us because the cost to those of society over time is significant um but you know i think getting to the core of some of the the questions it comes back to to me the ocean is a big part of the answer and working out how we get more food out of our ocean and because i i just believe there's huge potential for a country like new zealand where that's 93 percent of our our economic area to actually leverage more out of that space I think there's great opportunities too to disconnect what has uh, previously been unconnected things. Um, so Ian mentioned before about negative health outcomes in New Zealand, some of which derive from um, food and the enormous cost that has for the country. There's a health system cost for the country. There's a lost productivity cost for the country, let alone the social cost and mm. the cost to people's lives from those really poor outcomes. That's an enormous pot of money if you think about it, which if you could have better food inputs could resolve a lot of that. Those two things are not connected though. There's no way that you can um, point to mechanisms that will save that healthcare cost by better initiatives around food. Those things are in different pockets, they're in different sets, they're in different mindsets for people and they're on different timescales. So that really does require people to come together, think about the whole system, to say, look, I'm, I'm investing forward here. I'm making some investments into the food system now for the health and social savings that we'll get in the future. That's a really big call, but I think that's a call that the whole food system needs to front up to. And, and there is really significant value there if we get that right. Yeah. There's 31 agencies in government with primary roles across our food system. Mm. You know, just trying to get government to have a consistent view. And David's right, you know, the health part of it's not joined to the production part of it sitting in MPI. So we we need to get that, that overview perspective because there is the opportunity to do things transformationally different you know the, where, where does the initial funding come from is probably always the key question who's going to write the first check you know for me I'm, I'm interested in the concept of not necessarily taking GST off food but actually the GST that we do pay on fresh food why can't we ring fence that in the way we ring fence petrol taxes to actually use that funding to deploy it to 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 be the the seed funding to start to change our food system and i think there's an enormous willingness from all sorts of participants in the food system to get together there's just got to be a mechanism for them to have that conversation so you see all sorts of organizations some of the corporates doing pretty impressive things to try and make a difference so giving food away to certain groups of people or uh, adopting much more sustainable practices is their contribution but they're doing it in isolation we're not doing it as a joined up nation and with a nation of only five million people surely we could join up in a much more systematic way than we have done in this space and food's so central to New Zealand's identity uh, it's got to be a, a, a great place where we could test out new ways of doing things mm. so so yeah I would love to see um, a industry government um, and, and science all getting together as, as a group of three to say how can we tackle this as a national challenge let's make this a national priority a national mission to be real world leaders in food in a very different way 
Which brings me to a question I was going to ask you, David. Um, do we have the scientific muscle at the moment to tackle such big challenges? These are massive challenges, you know, increasing productivity, decreasing inputs, plus the health aspect, plus everything else. Does it exist or does there need to be a big fundamental shift in the way we fund our science? Well, I'd say a couple of things around our science, first of all. Um, when you compare the science um, organisations that work in the food space with counterparts around the world, we actually look pretty good. When you look at the number of people, the quality of the work we do, the impact that that work creates, we look pretty good. We've had a number of people from around the world coming to New Zealand to just see how the New Zealand food um, science um, and, and primary sector science actually works because they're viewing it compared to their own country's organisations and saying actually New Zealand's doing better than we are on this. So I think from a, a starting point we've got fabulous ingredients there. I think some of the things that we could do differently is have a more of a national priority, national mission, national strategy for food. So, so we work by dialoguing with individual parts of the food system and dealing with their priorities, but we don't have a joined up national approach on this, even though we're a relatively small country. So I think there's some things we could certainly do there. And then secondly, when you've got a system that's already performing quite well, and if you could point it more effectively at key targets, then putting in additional funds on top of that is an accelerator. So I would certainly say if you get the first ingredients right, putting the additional funding in will make a, a world of difference on top of that. It will really catapult us to the front. But, but just throwing money at a problem unless you've got the focus right uh, is not going to fix stuff. Well, there's always the argument New Zealand science punches a long way above its weight. I mean, wouldn't it be better just to fund it appropriately? start with rather than relying on us to outperform yes and um absolutely when you're already punching above your weight and if you put more money into it you could do a lot more um but that's um only half of the equation the question is what is that lot more that you're going to do and can we do that in a way where you get real um impact from it can we make that much much more impactful uh, and i think we could i think we could by having a series of um mission-orientated science challenges that actually address really specific issues that New Zealand cares deeply about. I think if we did that and got a whole lot of players, commercial players as well as science as well as government, rallying around a set of missions we all collectively agreed on, we, we could take that science and get it out of our labs and out of our research orchards and out into actual use to make difference for real New Zealanders. I think that would then create a self-reinforcing system because when New Zealanders see the real value being created from that, they'll be willing to put the money, more money in and keep the whole process going. So, so for me, um, half of it's around increasing funding, and I think you're absolutely right. I think that would be beneficial. But the other half of it is being really clear about what that funding's being used for. And I don't think we are at the moment. I don't think as a country we've made clear choices around what we want our science system pointed at. Mm. Agreed. So if you were, had the Prime Minister's job or in a senior role in government, is there any one set of measures that you would implement straight off the bat? I mean, election next year, these issues are going to be, are be hopefully be going to be discussed given the pressure given by COVID and the changes to our, you know, our budgets in the last couple of years with the cost of living. So is there one thing straight off the bat that you'd just plug straight in and say, let's start on this? Big question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think the... The Prime Minister's seat is the right seat to actually be doing that from, to be honest. I I think when I look at where we're at today, the way we're going to change things the most 
is going to come from being closer to our customers. And that's one of the things that concerns me the most about where we're at as a sector at the moment. We have been incredibly internally focused for the last couple of years and we've forgotten about those people called customers that in the end give us the money. And we've been able to sell because of the dynamics of the market, but we've got to really get back to getting close to meeting their needs. And that's customers overseas and it's customers here in New Zealand. And we've got to recognise that they're each as valuable to us in their own way. And I think for the industry, if there's one thing I would love to see, it's a strong reconnection to the people that buy our food to understand what is driving them today, not what was driving them six months ago or two years ago, because that's fundamentally changed. And making sure then that we're on a track to meet their needs. Because I think if we're meeting the needs of our international consumers and our domestic population, we have the potential to have a food system that you know, will go well beyond where it is at the moment. David, I can put you back in that hot seat. Yeah, I would take approach to the food system uh, similar to the approach we as a country have taken on climate change, where we've set ourselves some really ambitious targets. We've said these are targets that are just must-dos. We've got to land at this point. We've set ourselves up a group to monitor our progress, which is independent of the system, to say, hey, we know where we're tracking in the right direction and to give really high-quality advice into the system. And then we've tried to engage a broad set of players, society as a whole, government and industry, to say, what can you do to make us hit these targets? And I think there's pretty um, broad national consensus that we do want to go after those targets. And we're starting to put together the mechanisms that would do that. I would love to see food and uh, the food system in New Zealand treated in exactly the same way. If we could get to that level of clarity about what we want the food system in New Zealand to be like in the future, we could get broad buy-in from society, from government and from businesses, that's the direction of travel, and we could put mechanisms in place to set quite concrete targets in front of us and to marshal our resources against those targets. If we could do those things, and I think as a small country of only 5 million people, we're probably best place of anyone in the world to have a radically different food system in 20 years' time. So for me, that would be the one thing I would try and do. Let's think about what the future of food really looks like for New Zealand and how do we rally everybody behind that in a very tangible way? Hard question, I guess, but I guess the first step may be the hardest is setting up that roadmap and that direction of travel. Okay, well, of course, I know that both Jacinda and Christopher are huge SideGest fans, so I'm kind of looking forward to seeing some of these ideas being rehashed in the lead up to, to next year's election. Well, that's probably all we have about time for today. A big thanks to Ian Proudfoot. Thank you. And David Hughes. It's been great to be part of SciGest. It's been great having you. For their insights as to why our grocery bills are making us gag and how today's food crisis might give us a more resilient and more sustainable way of producing food right here in Aotearoa. To our listeners, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider. Matiwa, See you next time on SciGest.